0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
1: Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website, and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, in 1662, Robert Boyle observed that when the volume of a gas goes up, the pressure goes down, and when the volume goes down, the pressure goes up. The most popular explanation for that, endorsed by Newton, was that there were tiny static particles in the gas, pushing each other apart, and the more they were squeezed, the higher the pressure. What, though, if the atoms were not static, but moving quickly? What would flow from that? A lot, it's turned out, and those who developed this moving kinetic theory of gases helped unlock much of modern physics, including temperature, the workings of the sun, and quantum theory. With me to discuss kinetic theory are Isabel Faulkner, reader in the history of mathematics at the University of St Andrews, Ted Forgan, emeritus professor of physics at the University of Birmingham, and Stephen Bramwell, professor of physics at University College London. Steve Bramwell, can you summarise uh, what the kinetic theory of gases is and why it matters? Yes, so the uh, kinetic theory of gases is a
2: very simple Uh, model for a gas, the idea that a gas consists of atoms or molecules that fly around in empty space in the vacuum, they bump into each other, they bump into other objects. And the idea is that using uh, Newton's laws of motion, you can then calculate uh, all the properties of a gas from that picture. Um, The idea, the picture to have in mind is of billiard balls bouncing around on the table, but there are very many particles in any gas. Uh, For example, if you hold your finger up, uh, there may be a trillion, trillion molecules per second uh, hitting your finger, so to calculate the properties of that is, is very difficult. Now, uh, kinetic theory is uh, very uh, important for
1: many reasons. It's
2: important. Uh, can I just kinda of yes. say
1: kinetic means relating to or resulting from motion?
2: Yes. So kinetic comes from the Greek word for motion. So, so the key point is that the molecules move through the. Uh, the vacuum. So they move through empty space, and uh, they bump in, they they collide with each other, and they collide with uh, other objects, and and this gives rise to their properties. So they can exert force through their collisions, for example.
1: So I interrupted you.
2: Yeah. So so um, uh, kinetic theory is important for many reasons. It's important uh, historically because it was the first time that. Uh, physics really started to embrace the reality of atoms and molecules. Started to realise that they were, in some sense, real objects, as we as we believe today.
1: What does real objects mean in your view? Well,
2: uh, I mean, that's a good question. And that was uh, a question that that physicists in the late 19th century really uh, uh, sort of stressed a a lot about. (laughs) Are they real? You know, are they just things we conveniently believe in Um, or are they things we can see, for example? So I think most people would accept that if we can see things with our own eyes, Uh, they'd be real, but you can't see atoms and molecules. They're far too small for that. Uh, Many orders of magnitude smaller than they need to be to actually be visible. So we can't see them, but... Can we not
1: even see them with the latest gadgets?
2: Uh, You can now see them. So they started, in a sense, to become visible... Um, in one sense throughout the 20th century so uh, work by Einstein and others in one sense made them visible but it's in the last 20 or 30 years that, that it's become quite common to to look at atoms in very powerful electron microscopes, for example. You can't see them in an ordinary optical microscope, but in, in a device, the electron microscope, you can now see them, and that's fairly normal. So I think most people you know, believe in them as real things, but the, the, the atoms of modern physics are very complex things. They're not like billiard balls at all. Uh, they, they don't behave like uh, simple uh, hard objects. But the kinetic theory was a, a sort of transient... Um, period when it was at the forefront of physics um, and uh, th- they're a- you're able to calculate many uh, properties of gases in that way.
1: Can you tell us about Boyle's Law in the late 17th century and why that began to define the idea you've been talking about? Yes, yeah, so, so Boyle's
2: Law was um,
1: came about through a lot
2: of work on, on um, Uh, pressurising gases, putting them under pressure, and in turn that was really stimulated by the revival of a very old debate about whether space was uh, full of matter, a plenum, or uh, whether it was uh, empty, uh, a vacuum, and had atoms in it, and that's a debate that goes way back to the ancient Greeks, two schools of thought, one that you have atoms in empty space coming from philosophers like Democritus and uh, Leucippus. And on the other hand, you have uh, the Aristotelian view, Aristotle's view, that space was full. Now, there was a major event in, in the 17th century, the invention of the mercury manometer. By Torricelli and his discovery of air pressure, and so if you recall, the barometer has a column of mercury. Um, it's this column of about seventy-six centimeters is kept up by the air pressure, but at the top is a vacuum—the Torricellian vacuum.
1: What about Boyle's theory? So, so, uh,
2: so Boyle. Um, sort of picked up on that the idea smaller
1: volume the greater the pressure yeah, the yes. greater volume the smaller the that seems counterintuitive doesn't it
2: uh, well, well to
1: people like me it does
2: yeah <laughs> not necessarily though because uh, what they discovered really what boyle discovered was that um that uh, air is like a spring you know so the more force you put it under the smaller it gets um and uh, but the i suppose the boyle's law was important and mysterious in the sense it was the first law that really connected to properties of materials together, the first mathematical statement about properties of materials.
1: Ted Forgan, how did that play into the beginning of a development over two or three centuries which led to kinetic theory?
3: So I think we have to go back into a time when a lot less was understood about the nature of physics. So, for instance, heat was entirely uncertain quantity. It was certainly not thought of at the time of Boyle in terms of the motion of molecules which is how we think of it today. Uh, In fact there was uh, a suggestion that heat was a kind of substance a, a, a gas which repelled itself. So if you had a high density of this heat, then things were at a high temperature and then it would tend to diffuse out into a region where it was low density and that would explain um, hot bodies getting colder and warm bodies getting hotter. And so this this idea, the idea that heat was a substance, and similarly people um, didn't understand combustion. There was the phlogiston theory which was replaced by the idea of oxidation uh, um, well after boil. So people starting at that stage to think uh, we want to try and explain things in terms of substances, but they hadn't got the right substances.
1: Newton figured in the early thing, and the yeah. billiard balls are part yeah, of his yeah. idea of a yeah. static yeah. Uh,
3: static universe.
1: What happened to that
3: idea? So, So Newton wanted to find a, a an explanation for what Boyle referred to as the spring of the air—that's the actual title of his book about his uh, his experiments—and and, and, the, and waste, if we,
1: the we are under an ocean of air. Yeah. Uh, no, no. The idea, for, under for instance, if you vessel. if
3: you operate a a, a bicycle pump. And you push down oh, on see. the handle, yeah, yeah, and it, it feels yeah. like you're compressing a spring. Yeah. So the picture that people wanted to have was somewhere where you had things that were of pushing back, like little springs. And this, is, this can be used to explain Boyle's law. It's, it is a theory, but it turns out not to be the right theory. But it was, it was supported by Newton, and as a result, it, it had a lot of popularity. And that was the idea that as you decreased the volume, the springs got compressed, and so the pressure outwards increased. And and Newton actually took this a little bit further. He did a bit of mathematics and said, now let's imagine that each of the individual atoms, so he was believing in atoms, are going to repel each other with a force that varies with distance. It turns out it's not the inverse square law. It was inverse distance law that Newton proved was the right one. And then that was able to explain, explain Boyle's law. It was a theory. It was a wrong theory, but it was a widely accepted theory at the time.
1: What did the Swiss physicist Bernoulli add to the uh, to
3: the argument? So Bernoulli, he was well ahead of his time. Um, He he was uh, while people. What time
1: can you give us a date?
3: Oh, the time. uh, uh, I think he was the um, early um, eighteenth century. Um, So he he wrote a a book in Latin uh, about hydraulics, and that is what he's mainly remembered for today. That um, he he produced the equation which uh, accounts for the lift of aircraft wings and is well remembered by modern day physicists as the most important equation and and he was thinking not in terms of these um, things like uh, heat as a substance, he was was the first person to really express the idea of kinetic and potential energy. The idea that if you raise an object high in the air then it's got a high potential energy and if you let it drop, that turns into kinetic energy. So he had that idea and that was how he explained the motion of fluids and how if you... uh, make a hole in the bottom of a barrel, how the water flows out. All these things were things that Bernoulli was thinking about. So he was thinking very much like a physicist, and he was the first person to actually produce a kinetic theory. He, he In his book, I've only seen the picture, I haven't read the Latin, uh, he showed a picture of a of a, a cylinder with a piston and a weight on top of the cylinder, and his, his idea was that the molecules were hitting the bottom of the piston and keeping the weight against the, the force of gravity. So he really was the introducer of kinetic theory. But against this background, his work just disappeared. It was a chapter in a book on hydraulics.
1: Isabel Faulkner, another man, Robert Brown, made an observation that was relevant in the 19th century as we move through towards the present day. What did he add?
0: Yes, that's right. Um, Robert Brown was a, he was a Scottish uh, botanist and microscopist. He became one of the mo- foremost microscopists of his day and did a lot of work um, looking at plant pollination. He was one of the first to observe the cell nucleus. He'd been on an expedition with Matthew Flinders to Australia, collected a lot of plant species, and he was trying to um, classify them. In 1827, he was looking at pollen under a microscope and as part of his experiments on plant pollination. The pollen was suspended in a glass of water and the pollen actually burst open into a lot of little grains. And under the microscope, he could see that these grains didn't just sit there in the water. They danced about in a very irregular, jittery manner. Well, his first reaction was to think that this coming from a, from a plant, from pollen, they might actually be live in some way and propelling themselves. Um, so he did more experiments and he tried rock dust, which was definitely inanimate, and very tiny particles of rock behaved in exactly the same way if they were suspended in water. They jittered about in the same way. So it clearly wasn't to do with these tiny grains being alive in any sense. And they also, the motion was far too irregular to be explained by some sort of thermal current in the water or any convection current in the water. So what did you conclude? He didn't really know what to conclude. And for the next 70 years, um, people followed these experiments up and they still didn't know what to conclude. Um, they tried varying the temperature of the fluid that they were suspended in. They tried varying the nature of the particles. They tried varying the con- what fluid it was. So they didn't just use water, they used other fluids. Um, and none of these experiments were decisive. In the second half of the century, after the beginning of the, as kinetic theory began to to be developed, people started to try to make a link between this irregular motion of the particles and the kinetic theory. But it wasn't until pretty much 80 years after Brown had discovered it that the decisive sort of matching up of by then developed kinetic theory um, and an explanation of the, the motion of the particles was made and they were viewed as um, an, a result. Einstein essentially showed that they were... The motion, ir- very irregular motion, could be explained as a result of the statistical variation in the speed of molecules Statistic- in the gas, which is coming out of kinetic theory. So, and, yes.
1: This, sorry, interrupt. This is a time when statistics are entering into the discussion. Yes. Uh, and some physicists resented that. They thought statistics were too sub- subjective and, and fuzzy, whereas their work was clear and very unfuzzy.
0: Yes, I, th- I think there are two strands, if you like, to the way statistics entered into physics. Um, and the first was Chem's the beginning of the 19th century out of probability theory. Um, Probability theory having been developed in the 17th and 18th centuries, largely in the context of gambling and a bit in the context of life insurance and annuities. And around the early 1800s, particularly through the work of Gauss and Laplace, um, these ideas about... Probability became applied to analysis of errors in physical measurement.
1: Can we come back to that a bit yes. later? Because what I'd like to go to now, Steve is the laws of thermodynamics and how that changed the uh, discussion. Yes, uh,
2: absolutely. So, so while this was work of Robert Brown and others was going on, there'd been quite some developments in understanding what heat was and how it relates to... Work. So, work is lifting a weight, for example, and heat we are, we're all familiar with. Um, as Ted said earlier, people originally thought heat was a fluid, but by about 1850, it was realized that both heat and work were forms of energy, or more technically, energy transfer. Now, the, lo- the two laws of thermodynamics were formulated around that time. The first law is the law of energy conservation. So energy comes in different forms. Heat is one of them, but it can be converted to other forms. Uh, but the total amount of energy is always the same. It's conserved.
1: Whether it's converted to gas or whatever. Well,
2: whatever it's converted to. So so if you uh, rub your hands together, for example, you're, uh, to keep them warm, you're you're starting off with chemical energy in your muscles, you're converting it to mechanical energy in in the motion of your hands, and then eventually to heat. Uh, and so, But the total amount of energy is always conserved. That's the first law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is slightly more mysterious. It's the law of increase of entropy. Now, entropy is a slightly mysterious uh, quantity. Um, it it, it uh, relates very much to how much energy spreads out So if energy starts off in a useful, concentrated place, for example, you've got a a rock at the top of a hill that you're going to roll down and take energy out of, um, it ends up rather spread out, usually as heat. And so um, uh, there's a sort of feeling among physicists that develops in the sort of 1860s, particularly Clausius, um, that eventually everything is going to become... Uh, sort of spread out in energy, and you have this so-called heat death of the universe. Um, so, so this is a very strange thing, yet it's very well supported by experiments at the time.
1: Ted, Ted Paul, can you take us on about that? Um, Classius has been mentioned. Can you say what he added And Can you talk a bit yeah. more about entropy? The word random was introduced in the notes I had.
3: Yes, yeah, so entropy actually... So. Entropy can be thought of in two ways, and I think this represents the two strands of thermodynamics. So there is the kind of things that Steve was talking about, which is uh, heat and work and, and the operation of heat engines and all that kind of thing. But there's also the idea of thinking about this from a microscopic point of view, what the atoms and molecules are really doing. And and one way of thinking about entropy is to is to say, well, I know... I've got a box of gas, I know it's volume, I know it's temperature, I know it's pressure but there's maybe one followed by 20 zeros molecules inside this box. I have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So the entropy is a measure of how many different ways those molecules might be moving all consistent with what I actually know which is only pressure volume and temperature and and so that's another way of thinking about entropy and and so there's a link between the the idea of heat spreading out and the heat death of the universe which is shall we say the thermodynamic point of view and then there's the statistical mechanical point of view which is that looking at the statistics of the molecules where you you concentrate more on what's happening underneath and Klaus has contributed to both of these.
2: Yes, and I think, uh, just to pick up on Ted's point, um, uh, entropy was a mysterious quantity when viewed f- as, a, as something to do with heat. And so there was a great impetus for scientists to want to know what it was. And, and by, by that they meant they wanted a microscopic picture of it. Yeah, so this yeah. was a really big impetus yeah. for that.
3: So we're a long way from Newton's idea of billiard balls. Right? Absolutely. So, so, Clausius, after working on the thermodynamics that Steve's been describing, he then went on to consider kinetic theory, and he tried to make a a disconnection between these two, because what he believed, and I think most physicists believe, is that the laws of thermodynamics are entirely independent of the models you put underneath them and what the atoms are doing. What does that mean? The, The idea that whatever system you have You will not be able to make a perpetual motion machine. Heat will not pass from a cooler to a hotter body of its own accord without doing work, etc. These are things that are entirely independent of whether matter is made of atoms or whatever. But then Clausius went on to think about atoms, and he he then developed these ideas that have been a hundred or more years before put forward by Bernoulli, and he then estimated the speed of molecules in the air, and came out with an amazingly fast speed several hundred metres per second, nearly nearly a thousand miles an hour. And um, at at this point, it looked as though he'd made a big mistake because suppose you're in a big room and someone opens a bottle of perfume at one end. If the molecules really travel at this speed, then the smell will get to the other end of the room faster than the speed of sound. But that didn't happen. And this led Clausius to do one of the things that physicists um, try not to do, which is to be too too simplistic. So people have been thinking of of atoms or molecules in a gas as being incredibly small. Indeed, it's a physicist joke about, you know, point point masses and weightless beams and all this kind of thing. We go, go to the extreme in order to get a simple model if it's if it's a good enough model it doesn't matter if it's simple but in this case this was not going to work because point, point particles would travel the whole length of the room in next to no time and what he introduced was the idea of mean free path that the molecules would hit other molecules because they have a finite diameter and he he then uh, took this idea and showed that this would explain the slow speed of uh, diffusion of, of a smell or any other gas through another gas and uh, perhaps I should say a bit more about mean free path, because that, uh, so the, the 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 path is the distance molecule travels between one collision and the next one with another molecule, where it more or less forgets which direction it was going in. And the mean means that not all molecules are going to do exactly the same thing. It's a bit like radioactivity. If you start with a radioactive material and wait one half-life, half of the nuclei will have decayed, the other half are still there. Wait two half-lives and three quarters have decayed. The same with molecules. If they're travelling in a gas, when they've gone along the mean-free path, a certain fraction will have hit, but the others carry on.
1: But we're beginning to solve them, get to the solution. I'll get to a conclusion about this, Isabel, through the use of statistics and the idea of not trying to measure individual molecules because there are too many of them moving too quickly and it's impossible with the present technique, maybe it always will be. But if we take them en masse, if we talk about the mass of molecules and employ statistics as, as Maxwell did, then something is discovered.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, And Maxwell was getting his ideas not from physics about statistics, not from physics, but from social science. Um, the The ideas about statistics they'd been used for analysing errors in physics, but they hadn't gone any further than that. Whereas the social scientists, with the sort of nineteenth century love of collecting data about populations, had shown that if you look at although individuals of a variable as a mass on mass they have very stable characteristics. So things like marriage rates, crime rates, suicide rates tend to be fairly stable year on year. And that's the those are the ideas that Maxwell was picking up on when he came to develop Clausius work on kinetic theory. He was thinking, well we've got a lot of individual molecules they're more or less independent of each other. we don't know exactly how any of them behave, but on mass we have this regularity in the properties that's been that's um expressed in the in the gas laws the The pressure being inversely proportional to the volume um and so as, as you outlined, it's just not possible to. Measure everything sufficiently precisely, and do the computation to analyze them all those molecules, but he took the idea that we could look at their average properties and the variation from the average properties as well. The variation was important on mass; they would the average properties would give the gas laws, but the the slight variation that a few molecules would be travelling much faster than the average or much slower than the average although most of them would be travelling at roughly the average speed. That could also explain some of the other properties of gases.
1: But as I understand it, this gave conclusions which (coughs) which allowed the theory to develop and move on.
0: That gave, yes. And the conclusions were Initially, some of the conclusions were very unexpected. Indeed, it seems that Maxwell, when he first published his paper, thought he was likely to be disproving the kinetic theory rather than proving it.
1: Can you take that on, Steve? Why did did you think so? Uh,
2: Well, I mean, there there were some rather uh, strange-looking conclusions, like... um, uh, the, the the viscosity of a gas didn't depend on its density. Meaning of, what? Uh, that means that, uh, you know, the viscosity is maybe how a part, how, let's say, you drop a ball in, in the air, how it, how it's slowed down by interacting with the air. Um, and in fact, you, you might expect that to depend on the density of a gas, fewer molecules, but, but actually in, in terms of Maxwell's e- equations, it doesn't. And so there were some rather strange predictions, but they, they all mainly came true. But maybe I could just add one more um, prediction that also came true. Um, His theory of velocity involved the mean free path that Ted mentioned earlier. And um, meanwhile, while all this physics was going on, the chemists, of course, had been working on their own version of the atomic theory, starting way back with Dalton and uh, Avogadro. And and uh, they believed in Avogadro's number, the the, uh, number of molecules in a certain volume. And uh, measurements of diffusion of a gas, uh, giving the mean free path, and hence the molecular diameter, allowed the first... um, a proper estimate of Avogadro's number. And suddenly physicists and chemists together could uh, tell you how many molecules there were in this room, for example. Isabel?
0: Yes, and I think that was really critical. Um, It gave you a measurement. It gave you a measurement not only of the number of molecules, but also you could find out the size of a molecule. And there was a very strong belief among a lot of prominent physicists including the the very influential William Thompson later Lord Kelvin that if you could measure something then it was real mm-hmm. and Thompson said you know this brought atoms and molecules out of the metaphysical into the world of quantitative science the fact that you could measure it made it real.
1: Uh,
3: I'd like to come back to Steve's remark about the viscosity of a gas being independent of pressure mm-hmm. because that Immediately says, "Just a moment! That can't be true because if you pump all the gas away, then <laughs> then cl- clearly the gas can't have any effect at all." In fact, um, Maxwell was so worried about this result of his theory that he and his wife did experiments. I love that. To, Do you want to th-
1: tell people about it.
3: Yeah, so, so in his attic, in his <laughs> attic, with his wife <laughs> providing the temperature control and him measuring the oscillations of some some discs as it's, they. The particularities are
1: wonderful. Yeah. Ex- controlling the temperature control by shoveling coal under the fire.
3: Absolutely, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that shows you the the kind of situation people were in at those days. That and and the apparatus can be viewed online if you look up yeah. the Cavendish Lab um, uh, Museum. You can you can actually see Maxwell's apparatus that he used to measure.
1: And how, where did this take him? My interest. So
3: so so he then so he then established completely counterintuitively, that the viscosity of a gas is independent of uh, pressure and uh, it was, this was later extended by Boltzmann to show that the thermal conductivity ga- of a gas is independent of pressure but this must break down at some point and this is where the mean free path Why? comes in so because if you pump it all away then there can't be any con- conductivity or, or viscosity right. you know the earth would slow down in its orbit in, the, in empty space or something like that so, so w- what it turns out is the answer to this is that if you go to sufficiently low pressures, the mean-free path gets very long because the atoms are so far apart. And so the atoms can travel a huge distance. And once they can travel a long, long way, then, then the result that Maxwell got is no longer applicable. Let me explain it in a bit more detail. To carry heat away from something hot, the molecules have to pick up a little bit of extra energy from the hot object. And that is part of it, but they also have to carry it away. And that depends on the mean-free path. So the amount of heat picked up goes up as the density of molecules, but the mean-free path goes down as the density of <laughs> molecules, and the two exactly cancel. And this is, gives this counterintuitive result that it doesn't matter about the, the, the density until you pump sufficiently much gas away that the mean-free path goes all the way from the hot object to the cold object, and then it can't increase any further.
1: Isabel, can't. I I can, please come in first. Uh. Now let's go to Isabel first, do you mind? How no. do you, now I want to pick up on Boltzmann, mm-hmm. uh, who has been mentioned. Would you take up the, the contribution of Boltzmann, Yes,
0: please? OK. Um, well, when Maxwell had uh, devised his theory, he'd done so on the assumption that the gas was in thermal equilibrium. That means essentially that it's the same temperature all the way through. He didn't prove that that state ever really existed or how you got to that state if you weren't already in that state. And that's where Boltzmann came in because Boltzmann took Maxwell's ideas and, and ran with them but looked at if, if you didn't already, weren't already in that state, if you had a gas that in a container that was hotter on one side than the other to start with, how it would get to that state. And he showed that it would get to that state so that um, Maxwell's ideas were right and he showed that it would almost always get to that state. And the way he reasoned was that he, he found a way of assigning a probability to each sort of state of the gas through the concept of entropy. Entropy was increasing. He used the idea of the randomness... Within the gas of the gas molecules was increasing. he used the idea that the state of the gas was likely to get more and more probable, and he was able to show that the the equilibrium state was the most probable state, so that was the, where it was likely to end up and that was how a gas might move from a initially non-equilibrium state through to the equilibrium state where it would indeed be in the the situation that Maxwell had suggested and and done the theory for.
1: Steve Brummel, you wanted to come in.
2: Uh, I think my point has been made, actually. (laughs) but uh, um, uh, uh, Maybe I could just um, uh, pick up on that a little bit. Um, So this sort of... uh, attractive quality of the kinetic theory was starting to emerge that it was ex- starting to explain what entropy was so uh, boltzmann believed to start off with that he'd basically proved what that entropy the law of increase of entropy came from newton's laws um, now he wasn't ultimately right about that, and uh, there was a sort of howl of protest from several different scientists, and and it raised some very interesting questions because um, Newton's laws are time reversible, so if you they get, they run the same forwards in time as backwards in time, but the law of increase of entropy uh, is not time reversible; it, it only goes window. one way. The window, uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So so um, you, you know, if you if you smash your window. Um, that happens naturally, but you never see it smash naturally. You know, if you if you drop your cup of tea into a swimming pool, you're, you're very unlikely to get it out again. This is the one-way progress of entropy. Um, but Boltzmann thought initially he'd he'd proved the the law of increase of entropy from Classical mechanics, Newton's laws, uh, but he hadn't. And this, and, and, and Boltzmann eventually became a, a figure sort of under fire from all sides. Um, he, he did great and amazing things, but also caused a lot of controversy.
1: Ted, Ted Forgan, um, there was a thought experiment emerged at the time, started by Maxwell. Yes, indeed, called the
3: Maxwell's ref- demon. Indeed, yes, Maxwell's demon. He didn't actually name it uh, a demon. It was it was named a demon by Kelvin. Now, I think this is a nice example of the way that scientists work, that you don't understand something just by deriving it or learning it. You learn about, understand something by playing with it. And a thought experiment is a way of playing with ideas and seeing if they work. So Maxwell proposed that if you had a box of gas um, divided in two by a partition with a very tiny hole in one so small that molecules could go through individually... And then you put a small being in there. It was actually a sentient being in his um He called land. it the
1: intelligence.
3: Yeah, the intelligence. Indeed, yeah. Uh, I, but I think you could just make an automatic thing that did the same thing. Mm. Um, and that would look around at the gas molecules. And every time it saw a hot one coming from the right, it would let it through. And every time it saw a cold one coming from the left, it would let it through. And it could do this with a little... Um, door over the hole which could be slid sideways so that it could be moved with almost no uh, energy required to move it and in this way if this were to happen the hot molecules would all move one way the cold molecules would all move the other way and you'd establish a temperature difference without doing any work and that breaks the second law of thermodynamics you cannot create a temperature difference without doing work.
1: There was... I used the word intelligence. I think he used the word that was in intelligence. And some people have said this was the God Gap, that actually mm-hmm. it is not susceptible to physics, this, this movement, there because it is of its own motion, and it has been called the God Gap. What do you make of that? Ah, I- that God was operating there, or uh, being on a, a non-physical entity?
0: I think Maxwell deliberately called it an intelligence. His friend, William Thompson Kelvin, may called it the exercise of free will. So Kelvin made space there for free will um, <laughs> and people subsequently have interpreted it as a God gap. What I think is most interesting is that Maxwell saw intelligence as outside the laws of physics and that was a deliberate position taken against people like John Tyndall, Thomas Huxley, who were pushing scientific naturalism and the idea that deterministic, mechanistic laws could explain mind as well as body. And Maxwell was saying, no, intelligence is outside those laws of physics.
3: There's a sort of physics explanation as uh, as to what's going on in, in Maxwell's demon. If you imagine that you're trying to look for molecules, then you need the light to be on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if we have the light on, then that's already putting energy into the system and and you then will not be able to break the laws of uh, thermodynamics.
0: Isabel? The attempts to solve this or or understand this problem also acted as a a great stimulus to the rise of, of the development of information science what we now call information science and they tried to understand it in terms of the information that the intelligence would need to take in in order to make this decision storage of that information and then destroying that information and in their terms that destruction of the information actually increases entropy to an extent that counterbalances the decrease you get from what the demon is doing.
1: So we arrived at a place in the history of the development of this idea, uh, Steve Bramwell, where kinetic theory is established and accepted. Uh, what did it help to reveal? So uh, it,
2: it's for, for a start, it uh, it. Um, Uh, revealed many new properties of gases and uh, allowed a sort of rational basis for the development of chemistry of gases and of atmospheric science and of that sort of uh, thing. It also led on in in many different ways to different branches of physics. So uh, a few years after Boltzmann, uh, Max Planck uh, took the first steps to develop quantum mechanics and he did so by referring back to... Boltzmann's concept of entropy that had been developed for gases and now we can sort of, with modern knowledge we can see the relationship because Planck studied light and, and light can be thought of as a gas of photons a little articles, if you like, of light. Uh, so that was one thing it led to. Another thing, it, it developed into this major branch of uh, physics uh, called statistical mechanics, which is really the sort of major generalisation of kinetic theory to all sorts of matter and indeed to other systems as well. And that's really one of the great uh, pillars of modern physics. There along are four,
1: with, and that's one of them. Yeah. Uh,
2: well, I think you know the others are probably quantum mechanics, uh, relativity, and particle physics. Um, uh, the statistical mechanics has a special property of, of of being relevant to all branches of science, you know, and uh, and mathematics as well. And it, it really has huge relevance, though it's not as fundamental. Uh, physicists don't think it's as fundamental as as particle physics say or, or, or relativity.
1: Ted, um, how does kinetic theory apply to the work you do in your laboratory?
3: Well, I think one of the things that uh, we never got around to mentioning earlier was, and this was discovered way, way back by Bernoulli, is that the kinetic energy of a gas uh, is proportional to temperature. And uh, if you then extrapolate that down to zero kinetic energy, you come up with approximately minus 273 centigrade. And so one of the things that came out of kinetic theory was the prediction of the existence of an absolute zero of temperature, which took a, a while to be accepted because no one knew for sure what would happen if they went, went down to low temperatures. And indeed, uh, Scottish physicist Dewar after whom vacuum flasks are named, and and Cameling Onis all tried to liquefy the so-called permanent gases. Cameling Onis liquefied helium, the lowest temperature one, and thereby discovered superconductivity. And and so absolute zero is now much accepted and is an important part of the work I do, which is mainly to to do with superconductors, which have been going up in temperature in recent years, but even the... uh, Even if you want to use them, you really need to keep them in liquid helium. And, for instance, whenever you have an MRI scan, you'll have a container of liquid helium. The the insulation is provided by that vacuum, which is sufficiently good that Maxwell's statement that the heat will get through the low-pressure gas is no longer true. And and so it has an important practical application in the kind of research I'm doing on superconductors.
2: Steve of course we shouldn't forget about brownian motion i think we 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 were discussing it earlier and uh, einstein in 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 um in 1905 uh, basically applied kinetic theory to brownian motion and and rather interestingly this
1: is the pollen in the water this is
2: the pollen uh, jittering around in yeah. the water and yeah. basically what I, one of the things Einstein realized really was that the the pollen was behaving in a, in a way like a giant molecule um, interacting with other mo- with, with much smaller molecules in the liquid uh, but he that was really kinetic theory made visible uh, and so um, a lot of the critics of 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 um of kinetic theory just melted away at that point, uh, and and as as we said right at the start, you know why why do we believe uh, in in atoms? Well, people started that process uh, with Einstein and making kinetic um, uh, uh, theory visible in that way, and and actually he didn't need Maxwell's demon for that; he did it directly.
1: <laughs> Isabel, would you like to talk of any legacies?
0: Uh, we've talked quite a bit about some physical legacies. Um, There's one in mathematics, and that's ergodic theory. And this came out of Maxwell and Boltzmann's work, and the way they were thinking about the different states that a gas could be in, they had the idea that these states were changing through time, and they needed to work out the probabilities, but they suggested that instead of waiting a very long time for a gas to pass through every possible state, actually you could have a very large number of essentially identical gases and look at the probability of the state that each of them was in. And that's become very powerful in mathematics.
1: Finally, Steve. Um, I think what,
0: one,
2: one thing to realise about... Um, modern physics is the fundamental physics, that of the smallest possible particles uh, that go way inside an atom, um, is so far removed from everyday problems that you need to do lots of approximations to, um, uh, t- to sort of treat n- normal scientific problems. And so um, kinetic theory is now understood as as just one of those approximations, but a very important one, because it's the only way we can deal with very large numbers of things. And we're talking truly large numbers.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Isabel Faulkner, Ted Forgan and Steve Bramwell. Next week, the United States president who aimed to reconstruct America after the Civil War. That was Ulysses S. Grant. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. We
2: didn't mention Ernst Mach and his... Um, we didn't mention... Uh, where you uh, go. Uh, uh, so, Ernst Mack, great, very fascinating figure. He, he was a sort of fine experimentalist, but uh, became more famous as somebody sort of had a genius for picking holes in other people's science, essentially. <laughs> so he, his, his attack on Newton famously uh, inspired Einstein to create his theory of relativity. But Ernst Mack resisted the kinetic theory, the atomic theory, on the grounds that he, he said, you, sh- you know, you shouldn't believe in things that you can't directly confirm. You know, maybe he's, he was talking a bit like we talk about string theory today. Maybe, yes, Isabel. Yeah. About-
0: yes, he was, he was at a time when there was a... a Uh, He was a a part of uh, the energeticist movement, which said, look, we don't actually need these hypotheses about atoms and molecules to explain what we actually see at Mm -hmm. a macroscopic level. And they argued very strongly, as Steve has said, for confining your science to what you could actually observe. Mm -hmm. Now that went through, so kinetic theory really went through a sort of a low point Mm -hmm. from about 1880 to about 1900 and as I think it was Ted was saying Paul Boltzmann was really beleaguered Mm -hmm. and he, fighting for kinetic theory, he didn't really quite spot that the tide was turning around mm. 1900 as Planck was applying ideas from kinetic theory and then Einstein was coming in. And poor old Boltzmann committed suicide, he was so unhappy about it in 1906, mm. just ahead and not knowing that he'd just been nominated for the Nobel Prize in 1907, wow. which I always think is... Well, I didn't know uh, that last
2: no. bit. Yes. 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 I mean, it sort of goes back to maybe something Ted said earlier, that you, you know, the thermodynamics is such a beautiful thing in itself that it only involves real quantities, you know, so when you ta- I don't know about you Ted, but when I've taught thermodynamics I start becoming a bit of an energeticist myself, you know, <laughs> so you don't need to worry about molecules
3: here just uh, I think yeah. the idea that just because yeah. you can't see something that it doesn't doesn't exist. I is. was
1: just about to bring yeah. that up. Yeah. yeah. The, There's the, some the, molecules going on between us. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely <laughs> what I was going to bring up. I love that. Just because you can't see it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist.
3: It I'm I all mean, for that. Because you know, in in a court of law if uh, A committed a crime you don't actually have to have B seeing A do it. Circumstantial evidence is sufficient and after a while the evidence all adds together I think there's quite a nice analogy of this in in particle physics back in the 1960s um, people were discovering a whole zoo of subatomic particles and they produced a theory called uh, a unitary theory which uh, gave a kind of pattern and then quarks or quarks as some people pronounce them, were invented as an explanation of this symmetry. And there was absolutely no evidence at that time that they actually existed. And it was only about four years later that they, by going to higher energies and looking inside a proton, they could show that there were quarks inside. And, And actually it's even more extreme than that because even up to today, and we think forever, a free quark will never be discovered. They can't escape from each other. So these are things that you can see indirectly inside other subatomic particles, but you can't actually isolate one of them. Mm. And so, but if you ask any high-energy physicists, do they believe in them? They say, absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's coming from that idea of Kelvin's that if you can measure it, it's real. And if you can construct some sort of an instrument that gives you a measurement for it, then it then it's real. I think to be fair to Mac,
2: of course, you know people Mm. were uh, while all this highbrow stuff was going on, Mm. you know, sort of ordinary scientists, particularly chemists, were getting very Mm. carried away with atoms and molecules at that time. Mm. And you know, he was probably sounding a warning that you know maybe we need a bit more evidence for this. Mm. Uh, And uh, you know, sometimes those sort of annoying. I mean, it's generally considered that Max Mac was very unhelpful at this point. You know, he <laughs> might have um, he might have shut up for a while, but uh, but I think he he had a, 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 a reasonable point to make. You know, that um, you should at least ask the question: What's your evidence for all these ideas? You know, uh, yeah. but but uh, modern physics has sort of squared that circle, and we yeah. we, we sort of tend to allow hypotheses as long as they predict the right um, <laughs> the right the experimental answers.
3: Yeah, well, we, we saw right at the beginning that uh, Newton produced yeah. a theory that explained Boyle's law, but it wasn't the right yeah. theory. Yeah, so yeah, it's exactly. just satisfying experiment isn't enough. It has to be a yeah. whole lot of evidence adding together, I yeah. think, to be sure. Yeah. I and was it, going to say that I think one of the attractions of kinetic theory, and I've enjoyed teaching it, is that it's the very first theory where you can really start from first Mm. principles Mm. and explain a property of something. A gas is, after all, one of the simplest systems. And the molecules are far apart, as we know, because a gas is a thousand times less dense than a liquid or a solid, typically. And so you start from Newton's laws and you can explain its properties. And and it provides a a nice example of something that, okay, it's slightly idealised, but you can then use these ideas. And, in fact, people use them... For instance, in semiconductors and in metals, people use the idea of a mean-free path with the gas of electrons. It's not quite the same statistics, because Pauli exclusion principle comes in, but nonetheless the ideas apply there. And and Steve and I, actually, we some of our research involves using beams of neutrons. <laughs> and the neutrons are produced at very high energy, but then they hit the moderator, and it's like a gas coming into equilibrium with the walls uh, of its container. And they come out with a Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, along tubes, do the experiment, and we use them for looking aside materials.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, was, I was just going to pick up um, also on that I think as well, running through both the whole debate about atoms, but also about uh, the kinetic theory, there's a possible, there's certainly, as we mentioned before, an issue around indeterminacy, free will, there's also a possible theological as you indicated, strand that is coming into the work that's done on atoms by, by a number of physicists on, on complex atoms that might explain the chemical properties and things. Um, there's Maxwell's idea that all atoms of an element are identical, and this means they must be in some way, he called them manufactured articles. And then you beg the question, well, who did the manufacturing? And that. Certainly, again, for some Victorian physicists, was God clearly did the manufacturing yeah.
2: is, it, is it fair to say that um, atomic theory suffered for a long time of being thought to be atheistic over the centuries?
0: I'm not sure that it's as, as simple. Mm. simple. Yes, the, the, there, was a, there was a belief. When it, when it was um, tied to those early Greek ideas mm. that you were talking about, mm. then yes, mm. yes. But mm. I think they'd lost that okay. by the, the 19th century.
3: Mm. Mm. I was just thinking of uh, some other applications of the ideas of gases. And, and Steve mentioned earlier these, um, the idea that um, radiation, thermal radiation, is a gas, in this case, of photon's and And that that is actually quite interesting in astrophysics, mm. because um, if you if you apply the ideas uh, um, of kinetic theory, actually photons scarcely interact with each other, so they 're more an ideal yeah. gas than almost anything else. It, they, they differ, though, from the, the Maxwell-Boltzmann thing because they all travel at the same speed, in this case, the speed of light. Um, and also they differ in that their their number is not constant. You As the temperature goes up, you get more and more photons. But what they st- do exactly like um, a gas is that um, radiation can exert a pressure. Isabel, last word.
0: Uh, and I think that what that's exemplifying is another reason for the... the Kinetic theory was accepted was not particularly because of any experimental evidence, but just that the methods and approaches were becoming too useful to yes. drop and uh, Ted 's just given us a great example of some of those methods and approaches applied to photons.
1: Well, thank you all very much uh, here's our man here's our man with the offer you can 't refuse.
0: You Tea,
3: please. Tea, Uh, tea, I think. Tea, tea, please. please.
0: In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. (laughs) This is Planet Puffin.
2: There's a fair chance you will get bitten at some point.
0: Planet Puffin is a new podcast coming to you from a tiny island off the east coast of Scotland. Across the summer, we're going to be
3: following the breeding season, no matter what it takes. Now, there's an encouraging piece of uh, poo
2: at
0: the entrance. There's some nice white guano. So Becky, I'm gonna let you take the first game of Puffin Roulette. Ah!
3: Ah! Summer 2019's Hottest Puffin Podcast.
0: Well, only Puffin Podcast. The BBC Sounds.
1: Podcast lovers rejoice. Meet PocketCast, your new favorite podcast app for listening, search, and discovery. Our beautifully designed app gives you more control makes it easier to find and organize podcasts and
0: offers powerful
1: tools to customize listening. To hear all your favorite shows, download our free app at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores.